uh, our series that we've been talking about for the last month called God is Real. And we have all three of them on the uh, on the website and on iTunes. Make sure, guys, that the um, the recorder is working there. I see the light on, which which is usually good news. And we're going to finish up today talking about the God who truly saves and the God who truly heals. Of above all things, I want you to learn today. That salvation, a word that we use very, very often in church settings, salvation is a process. It is not simply a prayer. Sometimes we think that salvation is this prayer that people pray. And the more people that we can get to pray the prayer, the better we're doing. And so we do anything we can to get people to pray this, this prayer uh, that we can't even find much of in the Bible. The closest thing we can find to a so-called sinner's prayer is a, a story that Jesus told where one of the people in the story says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And this is the closest thing that we can find. It's not that praying a prayer is, uh, is, is somehow uh, negated or, or dismissed in the Bible. It's just that salvation is much bigger than a prayer that someone prays. It is a process. And I want to give you some of the moving parts of that process this morning. And all of you, regardless of where you are at, you are in this process somewhere. Even if you're the most hardened of atheists in the room today, you are somewhere in this process of salvation. Let me explain. First part of the process, usually, and some of these things happen in, in multiple ways and all at the same time sometimes. But here's a key piece. First piece of salvation. Repentance. And this is a word that, again, we, we sometimes don't use today. It's a, it's a bit of an old word. But this is the idea of changing your mind and the way that you, the way that you think. And repentance is a very necessary part of salvation. Uh, we have a story in uh, the city of Athens, a very uh, cosmopolitan city, a very secular city where the Apostle Paul is preaching to this crowd in a public forum. And he says these words in Acts 17, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, and he's borrowing from some of their poetry there when he says it, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. There's the word. Change your mind is the idea there. So he's saying to these people in Athens, you think of, of God as this idol. You need to alter and to change the way that you think. You live in a certain way that you're walking toward something that God dislikes. We're walking naturally toward sin and toward transgression. And in repentance, we turn around and we walk the other way. And we say, my mind, I am now changing and I will decide not to like these kinds of things, not to like the things that God dislikes, and I will repent. I will change the way that I think. I'm walking towards sin. I'm going to turn around and walk away from it. This is the idea of repentance. We see a wonderful 
uh, and perhaps I say that tongue-in-cheek example of this today uh, as we look at the news. And I'm stunned at virtually every single news article. Every time you turn on the radio or look on the television or look at a news website, what do you see? The United States presidential election. Right? I mean, and you see pictures and video and audio and clips and all of these things. I mean, you're bombarded by this, this uh, historic uh, election campaign. I don't think we have ever in the history of the United States seen this type of thing. And the, the, it's amazing that every time that there's an election, not only in the U.S., but also in Canada... We do see something that's, that has its roots in Scripture. And what happens? Well, we begin to look for and inspect and examine the, the moral lives of these people who want to be our leaders, whether it's in the United States or in Canada. And with great, great uh, uh, painstaking effort, we seek and we hunt for all of the skeletons in their closet, whatever they may be or whenever they took place, and we are just rabid looking for all of these things. Now, this is, this is quite something because we're a culture that boasts now that we say, well, there's no more moral absolutes. But it's amazing, whenever there's an election, we seem to discover them. All of a sudden, we're interested in morality. And we're interested in moral absolutes. And this particular campaign, wow, I mean, I never thought that an election campaign would be rated X. I mean, this thing has all kinds of unmentionable things in it. And they seem to be getting worse and worse every day. And we look at this and it's all centered around the moral failures, not of one candidate, but of both of them. Both of them are pointing fingers, and this side is accusing this one of smashing, you know, cell phones and deleting emails, and this one is uh, immorality like you've never seen. And the, the, I mean, it just, it, it's staggering to watch. And like some of you, I watched with great interest the most recent town hall uh, debate with the two candidates and there were some fascinating things about morality and repentance that were brought up in this campaign so you have the one the one candidate uh, saying to the other one you know with his revelation of these of these ghastly videos and these things that were said and probably done and the one candidate says to the other one well, or says to the, the entire uh, uh, population who's watching, the reason why this person says these things is because that's who they are. And I thought, wow, that is a staggering statement. Even Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Say, so, wow, that is quite an observation. And yet, at the same, on the same side... That particular candidate who said that about the other one, when their spouse was in office, did some of those things. So one wonders, one would ask the question, is that then who he is? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does it teach us? That sin has infected all of us, regardless of who you are, Regardless of whether you like Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Justin Trudeau or God knows who, 
regardless of if you're the pope or the pastor or the person in the pew, you are all infected by sin. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all of us need a moment where we say we are now changing our mind, and we are walking away from this thing called sin to something else we're not sure what yet, but we're turning away from it. This is called repentance, and regardless of who the person is, we all need to repent. May God help our neighbors to the south. <laughs> and may he help us here in the north as well. Well, part of repentance, or part of the process of salvation, I should say, when you have repentance, that's not enough. There has to be not only a decision, well, I'm going to walk away from sin. Well, what are you going to walk toward? And then you have the idea of faith that comes in. And faith is simply defined as a trust in God. So you're saying, all right, I'm going to, to decide to make a decision to believe in what Jesus has done for me and how God has revealed himself to me. I'm going to show faith. Again, in the book of Acts, we see the story of a man who worked in a prison. Uh, he was a guard there. And uh, Paul, the, the, um, the man who had this amazing experience of transformation and of repentance himself um, is thrown into prison with one of his colleagues for of all things uh, casting a demonic spirit out of a girl in the city of Philippi and causing quite a ruckus there and they throw these two guys in prison and they they uh, decide to have kind of a worship service and sing to God and then something miraculous happens and the prison doors are broken open. And this fellow who works in the prison is quite terrified at this moment because he knows that if these prisoners escape, he's going to face the death penalty. And he calls for the lights and he rushes in and he falls down and is shaking in front of Paul and his colleague. And he says to them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? He's making a decision to believe. And this is what Paul says and, and Silas says. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Key word there is believe. The man said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, you must believe. He didn't say you have to go and, and be a nice person and be a good jailer. All of those things are good. But the first thing that he mentions that comes out of it, you've got to believe. There has to be a decision to put your faith in something. And this is part of the salvation process. And then we have conversion. This is another word that we can use to describe it. And this is not exactly the same thing as repentance. Repentance is when you turn away from sin. Faith is when you show trust in God. Uh, conversion is when you turn wholeheartedly to God. And you now focus your mind on the things of God that you've decided to believe. This is a conversion. It means your mind is totally changed in the opposite direction, yes, but is now turning toward the things of God. It's converted. It's changed. There's a conversion that's taken place. Um, in Acts chapter 3, the beginning of the book of Acts, we see there is a man there at the temple gate who is crippled from birth and he is miraculously uh, healed by Peter and John. 
And there is a big um, uproar about this particular healing because nobody can deny it. And there is a kind of a message that's preached by these two fellows. And they're trying to explain what's going on here and why this person was healed. And in Acts 3, uh, it says this, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repent then and turn to God. So you see repentance is there, but the turning to God is also there. And this is the idea of conversion. You're now your brain, your mind, is focusing in on the things of God. It hasn't just turned away from sin. It's got somewhere to go and somewhere to focus. And this is the idea of a conversion. The Apostle Paul is a great example. That's a statue uh, that's made of the experience of the Apostle Paul. And if you read the book of Acts and the New Testament, you're going to see that the main figure there is this fellow, a young fellow, Saul of Tarsus, or Paul is his Roman name, and he is a, he is a fierce persecutor of Christians and of Christianity. And he has an experience uh, where he's on the road to Damascus and he is overcome by the presence of God and blinded and uh, falls to the ground. And this is, a, this is a statue that tries to capture it. Well, Paul has all of these things happen to him very quickly. Repentance and faith and conversion because his mind is changed. And he now focuses on strengthening the church rather than destroying the church. This is a full swing. This is a great example of conversion. When you have repentance and faith and conversion, you then have regeneration, to use another fancy word. And this is the idea of becoming a new person, becoming a new creation. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, For you have been born again. Jesus used this terminology when he was talking with Nicodemus uh, at night. This idea of being transformed, of being regenerated, but by a supernatural occurrence, by uh, the, the power of the Holy Spirit, a person is born again. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. This is an instantaneous thing that happens to a person. They are regenerated. And sometimes it's when people pray the prayer. And sometimes it's not. I know people who are very, very strong Christians and they never had some, some occasion where they were in a church and they prayed a, a certain kind of prayer and that's when it happened. They just can't, they can't remember. They just came to a place where they realized that they have faith, that they've repented, and that they're born again. And they have a living, breathing, walking relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It wasn't necessarily because of some one-time moment that made it happen for them. I can tell you that it was in my case, but it isn't in everyone's case. But it's a very important part of salvation. The idea that you cannot do it in your own human strength. You need God to come and live in you. This is the idea of being regenerated. If you don't have that, all you've got is religious motions. And you may have, you may have repentance. You may have faith. You may have conversion. But you've got religion until you have the Holy Spirit that comes in you and, and makes you a new person. 
Paul himself said, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. This we illustrate by baptism, baptizing people in water. It's an illustration of the fact the old person is gone and the new person has come. Now, I'll pause there and challenge you once again. We do have the opportunity next week to baptize people in water. So far, I know of a few who are thinking about it. But, you know, it's one thing to think about, and it's another thing to actually go in the water. So if you, if you still want to do that, come and see me, and it's not too hard to fill a tank with water, okay? Uh, but this is a powerful illustration of the fact that a person is born again. They're regenerated. This is an instantaneous, supernatural thing, and uh, it's, it's a, a part of the salvation experience. Are you with me so far? Okay, another, another part that we often don't think about is the word justification. Justification, this is a legal term, uh, and this is the idea that God declares you not guilty of sin anymore. This is a wonderful truth that is often ignored. You see, God keeps account of everything. God sees everything you do, knows everything that you think. I mean, some of you, you think that you're pretty good and you think that you're really, really strong believers. I got news for you. You have sinned since entering into this room, okay? And so have I. You probably don't even know some of the sin that you've, you've already committed, okay? And God is very kind and he shows this, this to us over time. Uh, but all of us, we continue to miss the mark even though we're believers. Hopefully we're getting better and better and I'll show you that in a moment. But the idea that when we come to Christ, when we show faith in Him, when we're regenerated, He justifies us. That means He declares us not guilty of sin in the eyes of God. And this should be very exciting to you because God no longer looks at you as stained by sin. He looks at you and you are justified before God. A way to think of that simple way, just as if I never sinned. God no longer holds you guilty of it. He has justified you because of the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. In most churches, you usually see a smile for that. I feel like I'm preaching good today, but you know, you may not. God justifies us as if we have never, never sinned before. The verdict is now not guilty. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in a courtroom or had a courtroom experience where your guilt or your, the allegation that was put against you was then removed and you were not guilty. It's an amazing feeling when that happens. Well, in the divine scheme of things, when God says you are no longer guilty of sin, that is a powerful, powerful truth we need to appreciate. Acts chapter 13, uh, this is the Apostle Paul again. He is in Pisidian Antioch. Uh, he's preaching to a largely Jewish and uh, 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 can call it a God-fearing Gentile audience. And look what he says. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. 
God is able through the Lord Jesus and the blood that he shed for us to declare us not guilty. And this is an instantaneous thing that happens. You can walk away from your sin because of the forgiveness offered by Jesus. Next part of salvation, not only are you justified, not only are you regenerated, but you are adopted into the family of God with God as your father. There is an adoption that takes place. I don't know if any of you have uh, the experience of adoption. Maybe you might be adopted or you might be a parent that has adopted a child. I know people who have gone through this process and it is a very rigorous process. It is harder to adopt a child than to have one the old-fashioned way, if you know what I'm saying. They put these couples through all kinds of tests and all kinds of rigorous screening in order to allow the child to be adopted by these parents. There's all kinds of documentation that they have to fill out. I know I one couple and, the, and they actually asked uh, one of the parents to lose weight. I mean, the person did not have any weight issue. And yet they asked this, this person to lose weight. I thought, wow, that is stunning. Sometimes it takes two, three, four years to go through this process of adoption. Well, when you become a follower of Jesus, you are adopted. And your father is, guess who? God Almighty. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to sign on the dotted line. You can screen him all you want. He's going to come up perfect every time. And that's why when we, when we sing a song like Our Father, this idea that God, you are now in a relationship with him where he is your father, as it were. For some of you, this is a difficult concept to grab because your natural fathers, there was problems. Well, God is not like that. He is the, the, the perfect father. And he shows perfect love to his children. And he has adopted us into his family, Romans 8. Um, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Appa, which is like a, a term of endearment in Ar Aramaic. Appa, father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. Aha! doesn't matter what your background is, your natural background or your, your, your parents and so forth or where you come from. You are now adopted by God Almighty when you become a follower of Jesus. This again is an instantaneous thing that happens when a person is regenerated. Most of you who are in this room, I'm assuming, are in the next part of the process and this we call sanctification. And this is the idea of becoming more and more Christ-like. And this is where you are right now, and this is where you'll be until the day that you leave this world. You're in this process uh, of salvation, and specifically, you're experiencing sanctification. The idea is that God doesn't want to leave you the way that you are. He wants to change you. He wants to transform you. He wants to make you more and more like Jesus every day. 
in your character, in your attitudes, in your thoughts, in your behavior, all these things, he wants to go about the process of changing you. It happens instantaneously, this, and it also happens progressively. Look at this passage in Hebrews 10. And by that will, this is the will of Jesus, we have been made holy, past tense, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Have been made holy. Good. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. This was in the, the, uh, the Old Testament days in the temple and so forth. And again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, that is Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for his sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Watch. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, for by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He has made you holy and he's making you holy at the same time. You are in God's kitchen. I think the illustration there, yeah, is you picture those hands as God's hands and you're the little hands and your life is kind of like that little potter's wheel. And this is what's going on. And God is shaping you and transforming you. And sometimes it's not particularly comfortable. But he's doing this for your good. To make you more and more like Jesus. And you're going to be cooking. And you're going to be on that potter's wheel. Until the day that you leave this world. This is the process of sanctification. And a lot of people who profess faith. They ignore this. And they want their lives to just be very pleasant and very comfortable and just very successful. And God often presses people. And he often makes life a little bit uncomfortable because he's working us through the sanctification idea. And finally, the last part of the process, the goal, is this word glorification. Glorification. This is the goal of salvation. And I'll put it this way. This is previewed by healings and signs and wonders and miraculous things that we see today. Uh, God doesn't want to leave you the way that you are. In the end, he wants you to experience glorification. And when we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, that's, a, that's an empty tomb, I think, in Jerusalem that somebody found. Looks, looks remarkable, actually. Uh, the idea of the resurrection of Jesus is for purpose. This is a guarantee that the same thing is going to happen to us one day. One day you're going to be glorified and experience glorification. Your very body is going to be made new. It's going to be a glorious and resurrected body. You are going to live in an existence where there's going to be no more suffering, no more death, no more sin, no more tears or sorrow. This is the kind of thing that we say at funerals because it's true. Because one day God is going to change it all. And this is why we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done. This is what we're looking for. The power of the resurrection forever. And this is glorification. Everything about you is going to change permanently when you are glorified. And at present we see pieces and parts of this. When somebody gets healed... This is God glorifying the Lord Jesus himself. We shouldn't be surprised when we see this happen because if Jesus rose from the dead, we are going to see people healed even today. 
We may not see it all the time. We may not see it in every situation, and we don't, but we are going to see it because Jesus has risen from the dead. It's so quiet in here. I don't know. I get excited about these things. Maybe it's just me, just the preacher, but this, this is exciting stuff. Um, I spent many, many years visiting people in hospitals and in their homes and all this kind of thing. And I have seen the miraculous before my eyes. It happens, but it happens rarely. When it happens, it's the power of the resurrection being made manifest in somebody's life. It's a preview of glorification. So Acts chapter 3, again, back to this healing incident at the temple gate. This man who is crippled uh, from birth and he immediately starts running around uh, in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. While the man held on to Peter and John, this is a man who was healed all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, watch it closely, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? In other words, what he's saying is, Jesus has risen from the dead. Why does it surprise you that this man stands before you healed? Why do you stare at us as if we, by our own power or godliness, has made this man walk? This has nothing to do with us. This has to do with God glorifying the Lord Jesus, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. This is why you see this person healed. Because Jesus has risen from the dead. Because of his resurrection, God will perform healings today. Um, and this is a foretaste of what is to come uh, in that day of forever God is going to glorify us as well as I look around at the audience I mean some of you you need more glory than others you know some of you you're, you're bald but it's not because of your choice uh, I'm getting gray it's not because of my choice I wake up in the morning and I'm more sore than ever you know I go and go and try and exercise and when I wake up in the morning it's painful it's really painful and the older you get, the more glory you need. Well, one day it's all going to change. And this is because the gospel story is true and because God is real. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, again written by Paul. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. We know that passage so well, but we don't read the rest for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. There's that family thing again. And those he predestined, watch, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Speaking in the past tense, about something that is yet to come amazing. The salvation process touches our lives from the cradle to the grave and even beyond. So I'd like you to stand with me and we're going to have a moment uh, of prayer and then we're going to uh, take the Lord's Supper together or communion together. Hopefully you got um, these emblems before you came in today. If you did not, uh, just raise your hand and someone will serve you. We have a basket over here where you can get those emblems. But I want to pray with you uh, before we go any further with this today. Father, we thank you for the great salvation story. 
And Lord, as we've been learning over the last four weeks that you are real, God, I, I know that you are speaking to individuals in this room. And Lord, you are, you are helping them see things that they haven't seen before. They're learning things in a different way that they may not have learned. And you've got your finger on some part of their lives today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to show them that thing that they need to change or that thing that they need to give to you. Uh, Lord, all of us uh, are in this process somewhere. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that work in us and continue to draw us to yourself. Before we go any further, I wonder if, there are, if there's anyone in the room today, could be just one or two persons, and you, you would say today, I'm ready for regeneration today. I want to surrender my life to Jesus. I want to become that new creation today. And, and, and I know that today that is the word for me. If there's any of you who are in that particular frame of mind, can you just raise your hand so that I can see it? And I want to pray for you before we go any further. There may be one or two people who are here today. Yes, sir. Thank you. I see your hand. You can put it down. Thank you. Anybody else today? I've had such a stirring this week about this message. I don't know why. So maybe there's somebody else in here and you say, the regeneration is the word that's got me today. I'm going to pray a really, really simple prayer. It's going to be really, really short. And if that's the word for you today, you can pray this prayer after me or even in your own heart. You don't necessarily have to pray it out loud. It's the conviction by which you come to God. God, I come to you and I ask you to have mercy on me, a sinner, that you would come into my life and that you would change it, Jesus, and you would make me a new creation. Today, I pray in your name, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer or if, you've, if, if you know that... Uh, uh, that you are a follower of Jesus. That's the only thing you really need to know in order to partake of these emblems today. Uh, so I'd like you to take them in your hand and take a look at them. They're really, really simple, but they represent something that's really, really powerful today. The Apostle Paul, again, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, he talks about this that we're about to do today. And the Church of Jesus has been practicing this for 2,000 years. And this is the idea where we remind ourselves, even in all the busyness of life, and I did this with the children's workers before the service even started today, because they're so busy. Even in all the busyness of life, we need to remind ourselves regularly, hey, Jesus came, and Jesus died, and Jesus rose again, and Jesus is coming. This is the gospel message, and we forget it so quickly, and we lose sight of it so easily, and this is why we need to remind ourselves regularly. You can face anything when you know that Jesus is with you, when you know that he is in your life. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth about this, and he says the famous words, when I, I receive from the Lord that which I also pass to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. 
and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me there's a really thin layer that you peel back here and this will expose just a simple simple wafer that represents not only the body of Jesus that hung on that cross but it represents you and me the body of Christ here in City Reach Brossard would you partake of the wafer with me today and Paul continues and he says in the same way after supper Jesus took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes you can just peel back that second layer and you'll see some juice there very very simple but represents something very powerful the blood of Jesus that justifies us and makes us clean let us take the juice together